Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, it's so nice to have you with us. Our guest today has been a bit of a yoga celebrity to me in my yoga path. She herself is completing her 79th trip around the sun and started learning yoga in the early 70s. She was one of Norman Allen's first students when he was teaching in New York City and was very instrumental in transmitting the teachings of Ashtanga Yoga through her first book, Power Yoga, written in 1995. She's a wonderful human being with a great sense of humor, and you are just going to be thrilled listening to our very sweet interview with Beryl Bender-Birch, who's just going to tell it like it is without holding back. So without ado, here we go. Here we go. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I am your host, Harmony, and I am here with my co-host, Russell Kay. Oh, this is a big day. And we are (laughs) here with a very special lady. She is definitely a pioneer in the yoga scene, in the yoga world. She's been practicing since 1979 and oh no that's not true i think it is no it's it's got to be 1969 69 yeah well it's a long (laughs) time (laughs) where does it say 79 right there oh no that's ashtanga yoga (laughs) (laughs) ashtanga yoga since 1979 And her first book, Power Yoga, and her second book, Beyond Power Yoga, were two of the first yoga books that I had personally. And so, of course, we're talking about none other than Beryl Bender-Birch. How are you doing, Beryl? (laughs) I already love you guys. This is a this is a class. This is just a a classic uh, introduction. And you are both both of those numbers are true, by the way, 79 and actually 71. So uh, I did I did take my first asana class in 1971 with Yogi Bhajan of all people. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some yeah. Kundalini yoga. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, overwhelmed with, I, I mean, I was surrounded by all of his devotees and they were very enthusiastic and I had <laughs> fun in class, but um, I, I just wasn't inspired to become uh, a Kundalini yogi, I guess. I, I had yet to uh, to discover my dharma. So I just, I said, oh, this is very nice. Thank you. You're all very nice people. And I uh, went on, went on my merry way. But I, I didn't, well, go ahead. I don't want to jump right in. I want to let no. you know. Oh, it's hard to doubt. I spent a fair bit of time with the, with the yogi bhajan, Yogi Bhajan's folks, uh, Matab and uh, Guru Karam in Austin, Texas, spent a number of years in their uh-huh. studio. And I, I had the impression that those guys, that Yogi Bhajan kind of looked out at the United States and what was going on in the scene with the hippie movement and Abby Hoffman and the roaring 60s and said, <laughs> uh, these guys need to kind of tone it down on psychedelics and do more <laughs> yoga. 
And was that was that what was going on with the people that you met in LA? Was that, were they all kind of drug addled and they were like drying out? Was oh my things? God! Oh, I oh Lord! Um, you just taking me back to the early seventies. I moved to California from New York City in nineteen seventy one because I wanted to move to the country. To the country. And to the country. I had a dog and I went, you know, I have to get out of the city and move to a more rural area. Um, and I also was still thinking that I might pursue the career of acting. Um, I, I had gone to the American, after I graduated from Syracuse University with a degree in philosophy and comparative religion and English. Um, That's Harmony's degree. Which? <laughs> philosophy and comparative religion. Oh, yes. Well, you know, I wanted to be a physicist. And I didn't know until my 40s that I had a very severe learning disability. I'm, I'm very dyslexic and I couldn't memorize. And so I, I, all the, I couldn't remember formulas. I really wanted to be a theoretical physicist. My dad was a scientist and um, a Rhodes Scholar and a, an, a chemist. And I was just fascinated by science. I grew up with a very strong foundation in scientific inquiry and, you know, but caught myself. I didn't say, you know, (laughs) was that a, was that a nice Jewish family in New York? No, it was not a nice Jewish family. It was a, um, my dad's parents were both from Germany. Grand his, his father's parents were both from Germany. My grandmother was Irish and my, um, so they were, he grew up Baptist. He was actually a uh, Baptist in, grew up in Wyoming, came to New York to go to Columbia University. And my grandma, my, on my mother's side, they were both, my grandfather was from, was Austrian. I uh, was from, actually from Hungary, but grew up in Vienna and they were raised Catholic, and my grandmother was raised Catholic. So, you know, I grew up as, I was raised as a Presbyterian, and um, my father had had a pretty intense, religious, fundamental sort of dogma shoved down his throat, and he was in chronic rebellion against organized religion. So he said, look, you can you can believe whatever you want to believe and kind of let me go on my merry way, which I think is what led me to become so curious about the Eastern wisdom traditions. Even as a child, I was an only child, and I'd sit out in the woods and look up into the sky. All my friends were animals. My were, uh, you know, I had imaginary animal friends, not people friends. And I was always curious about why I was here and where we were going and what was beyond the stars. So I think, and I'm sure Harmony can relate to that if she was a, a philosophy and comparative religion major too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Those bigger questions were things that were always on my mind from a very early age. Did, did your mom approve of, of this kind of uh, activity? What Was she a, a homemaker or was she also a scientist? No, she was a homemaker and she died when I was quite young. She died at age 45. I was 15. So, you know, a lot of things, a lot of things that I really would love to have run by her, I didn't really get a chance to do. And it's interesting how 
you know, oops, there was a you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. For all of you listening, now I might as well confess to this. I'm trying to break myself of this habit of saying you know whenever you run out of things to say. So being mindful in this interview. My mother uh, was a gardener, and she was the Girl Scout leader for the Brownie troops and the Girl Scout troops that I was in. And uh, my dad was, um, you know, he worked for U.S. Rubber and was very instrumental in actually the development of plastic. He'd probably be rolling over in his grave now to see where, where we've gone with plastic, which is actually a pretty phenomenal material. If we recycled it all, it would be we could have use it forever. Problem is we don't recycle it. But yeah. So I kind of oh I know what I was starting to say. It's interesting to me how we all have these very different sort of karmic paths some people their parents live to be very old and they end up having to take care of their parents who are when they're in their 90s and that's there's a certain lesson to be learned from that a certain you know, I have a lot of friends that are in that position right now that are looking after their parents and it's not easy I also have friends that lost their parents when they were quite young, and they're two completely different lessons to learn. People say, oh, I'm so sorry, your mom died when you were 15, but is it better or worse than having a mother who's 95 and dying slowly from Alzheimer's, and there is the that tremendous stress of being a full-time caregiver for an aging parent? Interesting how we all kind of live out all the different scenarios. Buddha said that we will do it all, that every scenario that is possible, we will live out in one of our many thousands of lifetimes. I'd I'd have to think, though, that having your mom pass at 15 would have perhaps altered the trajectory of your choices. And maybe you, you found yourself doing things or feeling things that that wouldn't have been accessible otherwise. I think there I think you're absolutely right. I think there's no question about the fact that I experienced a lot of impermanence early in my life. My dad died when I was quite young as well. My husband died twelve years ago. I think you learn those have all been incredibly valuable lessons to me and, and learning impermanence was something that was kind of forced on me at an early age and being a a student of Buddhism and yoga, you know, you learn that thinking things are going to be around forever, that confusing that which is impermanent for permanent, uh, causes a lot of suffering and we can see that collectively this year the huge shock that we've all gone through because we just assumed our lifestyle was always going to be our lifestyle and that we would always have this very comfortable place on this planet to if we were you know if we were fortunate enough to be comfortable if we were blessed with a comfortable life if we had enough to eat if we had clothes if we had shelter if we had work and to have to be shaken that deeply all of us equally 
I think it's just this huge lesson. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's Mother Earth kind of saying, okay, this is it. You know, I have, there was a, you know, I have sent you guys all of these lessons earthquakes, floods, fires, nothing is waking you up. I'm going to get out the big guns here and really slow you down. Murder. I, I have been ranting about the population for 15 years. When I was growing up, there were 2 billion people on the planet. Now there's 7 billion. And it's pretty obvious to me, although it doesn't seem to be obvious to everyone, although it is obvious to some people, <laughs> that there are way too many people on this planet. And I still look at television. I see people talking about, oh, we're having how many people do you want in your family? Oh, I'd love to have a big family. Oh, I have three kids. I have four kids. Mick Jagger has 18 kids. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> because so he wrong. can. But and some people are like Genghis Khan. You really want more of them. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I don't mean to make people who have large families now feel bad. Once they're here, we can't really do much about it. We can't say, hey, you've got, you got four kids. You've got to get rid of two of them. But yeah. going forward from this moment, I tell all the young people in my classes and workshops, look, back off on the procreation. <laughs> <laughs> that is the solution to all of our problems. Hmm. Someone was talking about climate change and racism and that the solutions to both of them were the same. And I went, yeah. And it's, again, you know, I don't know if reducing the population would eliminate racism. Probably not. That's probably in a class by itself. But it mm -hmm. certainly would reduce the pressure of we feel bumping up against each other now these you know resource allocation yeah. exactly yeah perfect russell yes yeah. resource yeah. allocation well my idea was to to continue having children until one of them solved the population issue <laughs> <laughs> well now that's an innovative thought i hadn't kind of looked at it that way <laughs> Sorry, it's too late for me to try that. <laughs> oh, it's too late for me too. Actually, I was I was uh, I was born sterile, so I'm I'm probably not going to be contributing to the population. Hey, oh, I'm so That's glad you guys don't have a huge family. <laughs> you know, my grandmother was one of eighteen. My father, my mother was one of four. My father was one of six. I was one of one, and I have no children. So it's I in in my little narrow trajectory, we've been going in the right direction as right <laughs> so i can afford to be a little outspoken about it so you're you've recently graduated from syracuse you're in new york um presumably you're smoking a lot of grass and you have a dog and you're thinking i'm gonna go to california just started smoking in new york yeah i just started yeah yeah and how did you get to how did you did you get did someone give you a VW van? Did you hitchhike? How'd you get Actually, that's there? very funny. I did have a VW van. I got one in California, a blue one. It yeah. was a 
59 Volkswagen van, and I drove it around until it broke down in um, Bakersfield, California. I was on my way. We were doing a big tour. I don't even remember who was with me. I think it was shortly after I did a very profound peyote trip out in the uh, desert uh, at Joshua Tree, California, and had probably the most enlightening experience of my life. And it was at that moment, I'd already been meditating. I'd met uh, Choyam Trungpa Rinpoche in the early, in 71 in San Francisco. And I'd met my teacher, the, the man who eventually became my primary teacher, I guess my guru, Munishri Chitrabhanu, who was a Jain monk who had been invited to the United States by the Harvard Divinity School to attend an international conference on religions. He was the first Jain ever to leave India. And as you may know, the Jains traditionally do not use any kind of vehicular conveyance because a, they are... They kill things when the, when exactly. the, the cars drive or plant, the things get killed. Exactly. The, one of their primary teachings is Ahimsa. Ahinsa, as I have learned, is the correct pronunciation for that word. Uh, and Ahinsa. And one of my very uh, bright uh, faculty members in my teacher training now is a, uh, is a just extremely gifted Buddhist scholar. And she and her husband spent Three years, they were, they've been students of Geshe Michael Roach for about 10 years. Oh, in Arizona, yeah. In Arizona, exactly. And then she spent, they spent three years observing silence in the desert. And during that time, they just memorized the, the Gita and the, the Yoga Sutra. And they can, they can go through it word by word in Sanskrit and English. And it's a tremendous gift to our program to have them. So I've sort of been butchering the Sanskrit language for years, so I'm slowly making amends for my, for my erroneous ways. Can, can I ask you a, um, a question about San Francisco? Because I, I lived there for 10 years. I lived on Haight and Deviz. And I just wanted to ask you, um, did you go there specially to meet Chakum Rinpoche? Mm-mm. No, I went to be a, a movie star. I was hoping I would be to, to San Francisco. Oh, no. no, to California. Yeah, no, I was hoping to get discovered. But the problem was I, I'd been to the I, after I graduated from Syracuse, I moved to New York. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts for two years. And I was probably the only college graduate there. Everybody else was out of high school. So I was sort of more on a level with all of my teachers at the academy. And I did really, really exceptionally well Mm -hmm. in Shakespeare, in movement, in mime, in fencing. The only thing that I really wasn't too good at was acting. And <laughs> I could not I could not remember my lines. Wow. And the, the That's first, brutal. The first play I was in, I got up on stage and I just 
froze. I was I still to this day have nightmares about being in a play, get the play is opening, it's like ten minutes until the curtain goes up, and I can't remember my lines and I can't find a copy of the script anywhere. And I'm running around like a crazy person thinking I can hide the script under my jacket, you know, if I could just yeah. find a script. Yeah. Like Marlon so, Brando or something like that. Yeah. Oh my God! This first play, I was I was on stage, and I played this ninety-year-old woman. It was a Pirandello play, and I had all this fabulous. My makeup was fantastic, and I get up there and I give the first couple lines, and then in like scene two of Act One, I skipped from there to like scene three in Act Two. And nobody corrected. I mean, we just left out a whole chunk of the play and everybody kept right on going. And there was one woman, I remember her, her mom had come from New Jersey to see her put on this play. And she got completely left out because her part was it was at that point that I went, you know, I think I should I should try something else in in um so I went to California anyway, still hoping that I could be a famous actor. Thank God I didn't take that path. <laughs> so then how did you get up to San Francisco? I took a job. I was looking for a job and I just happened, coincidentally, haha, got hired by the Biofeedback Research Institute of LA to just work their front office. And they were doing studies on meditators and measuring their brainwave patterns on biofeedback instrumentation. And I ended up becoming just an assistant to the director and helped him with all the experiments and the the research and started meditating with using biofeedback instrumentation. And I was still really curious about what was going on. It, it was an incredible time to be in California. It was the epicenter of the human potential movement. And, you know, there was so, and I had a, I had a friend, Josh Reynolds, who invented the mood ring, which was, oh, cool. came around in the seventies. Right. And he was introducing, you know, I met Swami Satchitananda and I met uh, Yogi Bhajan. I thought, Oh, I'll try some yoga. And, you know, I had was curious about all of these things because I was in California and through the biofeedback research Institute, I met people that were into meditation and um, met Gene Houston and, um, uh, and went to California with a friend of mine, to go to a conference on, I don't know if you remember, there was a comet called Kahootek mm-hmm. and they had a conference up there and a lot of new age people were speaking at this conference. And some people were saying it was the end of the world. And other people were saying it was the great coming age of golden esotericism. And, you know, it, it you just kind of, all you had to do was stand on a street corner and you'd bump into somebody who was into something that was fascinating. <laughs> and yes, of course, smoking a lot of pot. And then there was that 12 button peyote trip in the desert, which t- radically altered my life. In what way? Well, that was my first real experience of a heavy altered state of reality. And, and, of, of, of impermanence, 
of emptiness, of connectedness. I, I think it was truly a Samadhi experience and it lasted about 14 hours. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's one of those things that, and I'm sure you are familiar with this as a practicing yogi that, you know, we all have these moments of, of great insight. And even if it's just for a second or two, you know, where you just touch Samadhi, you touch that moment of emptiness and you can't really, it's, it's the experience of yoga. You know, it's not, oops, there was a, you know, it was very quiet and subtle, but it was in there. (laughs) You touch that moment of boundlessness when you really truly have an experience of the true self. And that change, you know, that gave me so much faith in my practices I I think when you start out on the path of yoga, and most of us start with asana, I didn't connect asana to meditation until I met my teacher, my Ashtanga teacher, Norman Allen, who gave me a copy of the Yoga Sutra. I went, oh, I see this is this whole practice of asana is really just practice for meditation. But I didn't think of them as being connected until I started learning about Ashtoanga, the eight limb path, and that's that's phenomenal to me. I, I I can appreciate it, and it seems it seems so obvious in hindsight that yoga and meditation are you know functionally the same. You're practicing for a particular experience, for the the zero experience, for um, for samadhi, for for a unification, and everything is is a um, uh, one pointed practice to get you there. Uh, what is that called? Yekam. Yeah. And so, but in, it's, it's, it's amazing that you, that even as a generation of, of people might not have all totally clued into that. And they might also think of it as separate until it becomes really, you know, felt. And, but I want to get, I want to get back to your your story. So you're in California, and then you decided before, to go back. Before we go back, I hold that thought for a second. I think for hundred, I think you're on to a interesting point there, Russell. Is that for hundreds, forever, yoga was synonymous with meditation. Mm-hmm. Yoga was synonymous with samadhi. If you look at Vyasa's translation of the Yoga Sutra and look look at the real scholarly uh, interpretations of of how he, or look at the some of the scholarly commentary on the sutra and how he interpreted some of them, is he unquestionably thought of yoga as the experience of samadhi. And I think in that second sutra in, in book one, where we talk about yoga as the, the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind as the definition, I don't really think that's a definition. I think what Patanjali is saying is if you can quiet your mind, then maybe you will have an experience of yoga. You know, mm-hmm. then maybe you will have an experience of samadhi. You'll be able to. And you can't explain it. I think he does the best possible job in in the writing and certainly in the kata, the kata Upanishad, one of the Upanishads where it taught it does the most profound uh, 
job of trying to describe the experience of samadhi, trying to describe that experience I had on under the influence of 12 peyote buttons or, you know, which you can approach again through meditation. I mean, the Yoga Sutra tells us, look, you can have these experiences with the use of magical herbs or meditation or practice or, you know, previous life work in previous lifetimes. So it's all authentic. The problem is, I think when you use an aid is that you can't go around stoned on LSD all the time. Well, you can, but I don't, I don't think that's the intention. I think it's meant to give us a mind opening, mind expanding experience. And then you go back and you think, okay, how can I recreate that through meditation? Mm. But, but Vyasa regarded and, and, and everyone in the, the, you know, the yoga world, yoga was regarded as meditation. And it's only in the last hundred years or so, or 200 or whatever it is, that we've begun to equate yoga with asana. You know, you tell people, I'm going to practice yoga today. And they think, oh, you're going to do some exercise. You know, you're going to do those postures. Yeah, yeah workout. Going to do your workout, exactly. Yeah. Like a shorter amount of time, even because, like you said, in the in the 70s, what was being introduced and in the 60s as yoga was um, a lot of, you know, transcendental meditation and, you know, other spiritual meditative practices that people really identified with yoga, not even the asana practice so much, I don't think. Exactly. Yeah, true. And it was very soft in the 70s. Yoga was a very soft practice. The Shivananda yoga was integral yoga. All of it was relatively soft. Even um, Iyengar started doing a stronger practice. And then when Patabi Joyce came to the United States and introduced his version of vinyasa, you know, of the introduced this idea of vinyasa connecting the postures together. I think that had a tremendous influence on all the yoga traditions. And mm-hmm. Iyengar certainly was familiar with that methodology, mm-hmm. just approached it a little differently. Yeah. It's, uh, that's, it is, I, I, I'm incredibly fascinated by, by these sort of historical lineages and Harmony and I do, um, um, uh, have often done a, uh, a history lesson, a, a slideshow in our workshops. And I, I started doing it in Taiwan, um, gosh, about uh, 15 years ago. Because I, I, everyone there in Taiwan was doing something, um, whether it was hot yoga or flow yoga or power yoga. And, <laughs> and I was like you're all doing Ashtanga yoga and said, no, 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 this is not Ashtanga yoga. That's what you do. This, this is something very different. And I said, I'm going to do a, a fucking slideshow to teach you guys where <laughs> these words come from. And I did a whole slideshow on Beryl Birch's power yoga and where the word comes from and what, what, what this all is. And, and I was able to explain to them that this, look, this is a tree and all the roots go back to, um, uh, Krishnamacharya. Sri Krishnamacharya. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I sort of regard, I mean, I studied for several years with Patavi Joyce, but Norman Allen was my teacher and taught me, you know, I studied with him for several years. And once I started learning Ashtanga, and I 
when I saw Norman do an, uh, a demonstration in New York City in 79, after I left California, I went to Colorado for uh, seven or eight years, and then I moved back to New York. Because and, you were in Colorado. Were you were you in in Boulder, Kripalu? No, I was in winter. I was in Fraser, which is the coldest town in the continental United States, along <laughs> International Falls, Minnesota. And I taught yoga there to all the ski instructors and all the ski patrol. And I was basically teaching a Shivananda yoga with an overlay of Iyengar. Mm-hmm. Uh, training and because I'd taken Iyengar workshops and I'd taken I lived at the Shivananda Yoga Center for a while when I was in California and um, and that was a, a pretty you know it was a pretty easy moderate asana practice it wasn't crazy it was the most vigorous practice that I could that was that I discovered at the time I wasn't looking for a vigorous practice but wasn't really looking to do asana Mm -hmm. and when I saw Norman do this demonstration I was just blown away I went oh my god this is yoga this is incredible so you were were teaching yoga in New York um yes yeah I was I was teaching I came back to New York to do a teacher training ironically, at the Jane International Meditation Center on 86th and Lexington. Nice. And my teacher was there, and um, I was teaching at the center, and I was teaching a couple private classes, but Norman came to that center because one of his students, one of his two students, which was all he had, happened to go. They happened to be a student of Munishri Chitrabanu as well. And so Norman came and he did this little workshop. And there were about I don't know seven or eight of us in that workshop. And I was just like, and basically we just watched him work with this one person. And I was like, oh my word what is this Mm -hmm. and I just said I have to learn this I mean I just fell in love it was you know I'd already been to India I went to India in 74 for a year and for a year yeah with well almost a year you know less than a year maybe seven or eight months and I uh, went with Muni Sri Chitrabanu and traveled with Jain monks and nuns and observed silence for three months and lived up in the Himalayas in a little hut on the side of a mountain. And, you know, there's some wonderful stories there. But when I came back, um, I came back in 75. And that's when I decided, you know, I need to be in California. I mean, I need to be in Colorado and spent uh, sp- spent the next uh, five or six years in Colorado. And that was, so by that point I had already, I was meditating, I was practicing asana and I had kind of taken the Shivananda practice and made it as flowy as just intuitively, I sort of made it a little more flowy. But when I met Norman, it was like I went all the way to India to find what I was looking for. And it was right there in my backyard in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said, yeah, I want to learn this. 
You know, it's kind of like, you know, you see a great virtuoso piano player and you're playing Beethoven and you go, oh, my God, this is so great. I want to play Beethoven. Yeah. And you go and you the next day and you take a class and he's teaching you the, the scales and you go, yeah. no, 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 I don't want to learn, learn this. Beethoven. Yeah. I want to learn Beethoven. Yeah. It's yeah. the classic story, right, in the Indian literature. So Norman goes, oh, OK, you want to do this? All right, here's the deal. <laughs> Six months minimum, 5.30 in the morning, 24 days a month, you miss a day and you're out. Yes or no, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 24 days. Did you get a Saturday off? Yeah, 24 days a month. You get Saturdays, new moon, and full moon off. Even yeah. then, even, wow, even in 79, it was like that. Okay. So I'm looking at him now. I just come from California, you know, where it was, woo, let's try this. Let's smoke a joint. Let's do that. I mean, I didn't have a clue about the word discipline. And so that was it. The next day I show up down, walk down to where were we practicing down on Duane street in a butter factory. And I had no money. I was living in some, this lovely Jewish woman from the yoga center, from the Jane Center, let me stay in her bedroom. And so I walked down to Duane Street, show up right there. I'm ready to go. And Norman says, oh, Beryl, good to see you. Yes, you come in. You sit down. You watch. Yeah, Yeah. right. First class. Yeah, so I watched and I was like, okay, because that's very good. You come back tomorrow. Went back tomorrow. Beryl, you're here. Good. Okay. Yeah. Come on in. You sit down. You watch. <laughs> so this goes on for this goes on for three or four days, and I'm starting to get really antsy. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought I know what will work. I'm a meditator. Right? I can sit in full lotus. I'm going to sit here and not move. And he'll be so impressed with my skills mm. that he will let me begin practicing immediately, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After about 20 minutes, I'm in complete sweating my brains out. I'm in so much pain from sitting and not moving. He doesn't notice. I don't move. So this goes on for about a week, right? Now I'm at the point where I'm going, look, I don't really give a shit if I ever learn this practice or not, but I am not going to be defeated here. I will keep showing up here for the rest of my life. I, I'm smart. I'm wise to this guy's game. <laughs> so it's this confrontation between the two of us. I come in, I sit down, and I fucking watch. <laughs> <laughs> So one day when I finally give up any hope of ever learning this practice, this yeah. oh, Beryl, you, you do Surya Namaskar A, do three or four of them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've learned it a little bit from watching. He comes over yeah. and says something about the breathing, and I'm going, you yeah, know, how are you doing that breathing thing? <laughs> and I do the three or four of sun salutes. And he says, that's very good. You lie down, you take rest, you come back tomorrow. And that's how it went. And within six months, I was well into second series. Wow. And, but that's, you know, I tell people now, you're going to do Ashtanga? Don't screw around. You can't just do, you got to do it. 
You know, yeah. if you're going to do the Ashtanga Asana practice, you need to do it. Otherwise, you'll get stuck in primary series. And as brilliant as it is as a sequence, it's not complete. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all forward bending. And you'll be, you know, you'll look like you're 90 when you're 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have got to do second series. And I tell people all the time, I don't care what your teacher says. You need to be doing backward bending. Yeah. Yeah, it's so helpful for all that heart opening, and there's just so many push-ups in the first series. <laughs> oh, my God. My wrists are shot. I can't do chaturanga anymore. I can't do, you know, I just have severe arthritis in my thumb on my left hand and my left wrist, and, you know, I have to use fists, and I can't do bakasana. I can't do anything. can't do handstand. can't do any of the wrist stuff on my hands anymore. But that's all right. I still do. I do my present power sequence, which is half primary and half second, and mm-hmm. love it. And I still love the practice. But you know, as we get older, you you modify. You know, and that was that's what got me thrown out of the Ashtanga Church was <laughs> working with athletes. And I realized, look, this is a great practice, and this could be so helpful to athletes to to extend their athletic career and help them stay mobile, keep their, you know, joints open and keep their, prevent injury and help them recover from injury. Mm -hmm. But people were so tight from running and biking and climbing and weightlifting that they couldn't do the postures. I mean, the first posture in primary series, Pada Gustasana, Mm -hmm. that posture is contraindicated in sports medical circles unless when, unless your hamstrings are long enough to allow you to bend over so that your coccyx is high. If your coccyx isn't high when you're bending over with straight legs, you need to bend your knees right. and keep the back in extension and just use your legs to lower yourself down. So I, I just people to bend their knees all the time. It's my first lesson, bend your good knees. Good for you. Yeah. And, you know, when you first learn this, I remember my first corporate job was at PepsiCo, probably in 1982. Five maybe, and I went in there, and I'm, you know, she said, "Well, the fitness director says, well, let's see what you're going to teach here." And I went through the sun salutations. I went into Padagustasana, mm-hmm. and she says, "Oh, you know, that's contraindicated in sports medical." <laughs> oh my that's how I learned it. I went, yeah. "Oh, yeah, uh, okay. sure, yeah." She said, "Would you be willing to leave that out?" Well, that was friggin' heresy to me then, you know, yeah. leave it out. This is the form. This is the practice. No, we, but it depends on how much you wanted the job. You know, right. I wanted, I wanted the job and I went, yeah, leave it out. Sure. No problem. <laughs> Let's start with triangle pose. Yeah. And, um, when, when Stanford asked me to, uh, give up the, the Ashtanga yoga mantra so I could get the job, said, yo, you bet. and we're done and you know back in the you know back in the 80 when my first book when power yoga came out oh my god you know i was so i was on the defensive constantly because i took so much crap for you know people thought i was just some brainless jock who didn't teach real yoga had no training in yoga and was just you know, and I was the wellness director of the New York Roadrunners Club for 22 years, and I taught this practice to over 100,000 people. 
And it was so painful to be so, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't universal. I mean, it was in the Ishtanga community. The fundamentalists were like, you know, no, you can't alter the practice. You can't call it power yoga. That's heresy. Right. Well, you know, if it were the Middle Ages, I probably would have been burned at the stake. <laughs> so it was it was other people like yourself who had been practicing with Batavi Joyce who would say to you this in conversation, this isn't. Nobody ever said it to me in conversation. No, that, no, this was, you know, all, no, I'd go into, we'd hear messages coming up from downtown from a particular studio that said, oh, those people up there don't teach real yoga. And, you know, a letter was written to Yoga Journal, uh, just ripping power yoga to shreds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they published it. This was in they, when was they it? published that letter. They published right. the letter, right. but not. It wasn't written by Patabi Joyce. Exactly. Was, no, they said it was. They signed it from Patabi Joyce, and we we know now. I know now who wrote it. Sure. But at the time, we didn't know who was. Tim or Richard or Chuck Miller or Eddie Stern or mm-hmm. Eddie Modestini or, you know, because all those guys were in India in 95 that summer for Patabi Joyce's birthday. And that somehow that's when the letter got written. And David Swenson was our, my most loyal friend. He stuck up for me with Patabi Joyce and with, you know, with every, he really went out on a limb just defending me and us and the work we did. Um, but uh, it took a long time for, you know, it was absolutely what had to happen to me because it taught me to stand on my own two feet. But it was very, very painful at the time to be so, you know, I was working so hard. And it was really like trying to destroy my business and my livelihood and my practice. And my was my practice that got me through it. It sounds, it sounds, it does sound like competitive business practice to destroy your competitors. Um, and not at all what we think of when we talk about a community of, of peace loving Ashtanga yoga practitioners or just yoga practitioners in general. Um, it's something of a, it sounds like something of a hypocrisy. You know, yeah, well, we're all human, right? And we, the, I think one of the things it taught me was not to pretend to be something I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I just feel like I'm a pretty down to earth, level headed sort of practitioner. And I don't pretend to, you know, I don't pretend not to eat chocolate chip cookies and then go eat them in the closet. You know, I mean, you 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 need to. I mean, if you're really going to practice satya and ahimsa, then you have to really work at it. And those are the found. You know, that's the foundation of our practice. Asana is such a small part of yoga. It's you know, it's 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 the it isn't it like begin it's like learning to run a 5k if you're training for a marathon it teaches us how to concentrate basically and yes it you know it begins to refine the body and work out the samskaras and 
begin to move prana through the body and prepare us for pranayama. It's a it's a brilliant methodology, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. it is for sure. <laughs> I want to ask you to. I want to kind of set up a. Um, talking about ahimsa and and ashtanga yoga and asana practice um but i want to set that up first by asking um norman left new york he probably he probably went to maui um i think robert moses was in the class with you at times and then you just um you made a, a trip in 87 to meet sri k patabi joyce at the feathered pipe ranch yep and I think Richard Freeman was there. Yep, and Tim Miller was there, and John Schumacher was there. How did that? I've heard a lot about this thing. Who set that up? Who set up that retreat or workshop? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it was out in California. Is that right? No, Feather Pipe is in Montana. It is and in then Montana. Okay. He was here. That was in May, and that was the whole year that. I, Tom and I drove across country in our little Honda Civic station wagon with both dogs and Clifford Sweet loaned us a couple hundred dollars and yeah. paid for our way to study with Patabi Joyce. He said, you need to study with this guy. Yeah. And I came back from Feather Pipe Ranch and then in June or July, whenever he came out again, we drove out and we started in I think he started in San Francisco and then we went to Santa Cruz and was there for a week. And then it was Santa Barbara at um, White Lotus Foundation. He was there for a month. Then we went to Encinitas to Tim's studio. I don't think I went to, I can't remember when he first went to Richard Freeman's. We, I think that was in 89 that I went to, mm-hmm. went to Boulder to study with Patabi Joyce no, but Tom was there too, so maybe that was after Encinitas. Tommy Joyce was still grabbing people, and you know, I mean, every single town we were in, somebody stood up at the end of class and said, you know, made some big fuss about how they'd been inappropriately touched, and you know, the rest of us would just go, "Oh shit, here we go again." Every and time. I- well, yeah, I remember it in Santa Cruz, especially some guy stood up and said his wife had been um, molested. And then in Boulder, uh, somebody came up to Tom at the health food store afterward and said, oh, no, somebody says somebody put his finger up my lawn. Do you think that's clinical? And Tom about busted up laughing and went, no, nah, I don't think it's clinical. You know? <laughs> But it was pretty common knowledge. Tim Miller was always putting out fires everywhere we went, you know. And But it wasn't, I guess women weren't ready. I was cool because my husband was there, and so he didn't bother with me. But um, now I, I remember Anna Forrest stood up to him. She about decked him. She told him to, you know, get his fucking hands off her. Um, <laughs> but it... You know, now in retrospect, you know, that everybody's so horrified, that just strikes me as a little too little too late. You know, the man is dead and gone. Let him rest in peace. And he didn't rape anybody. Was he inappropriate? Yes. Mm-hmm. Were most of the Indian teachers inappropriate at one time or another? Yeah, certainly 
with the exception of Iyengar, you know, I don't think there anybody, wasn't anybody who wasn't. Mm-hmm. And they were all pretending to be otherwise, pretending to be celibate, pretending to be all friggin' holy. Mm-hmm. And they, I think what we learned was that, you know, you came, whoops, there was a, you know, <laughs> the, the, um, what's the name of that organization that teaches you to be a better speaker? Toastmasters. Toastmasters. Yeah, I can. I feel like there's somebody out there in the audience who's counting my (laughs) nose. You you have a quote that I I found somewhere that I I really liked. You you said you felt that Batabi Joyce was a good coach. You didn't always like the way that he treated people, and especially didn't like the way he treated women. So you you liked Ashtanga yoga. You loved Norman Allen. But you didn't feel the same way that maybe some of your contemporaries did, that he was the end-all, be-all. No, I did not. And I didn't kiss his feet, and I didn't feel like he was an enlightened master. I had a a guru. Muni Sri Chitrabhanu was my spiritual teacher, and I felt that Patabi I was respectful. I was an excellent student. Um, I wasn't late. I, I did the practice. I worked hard. I wasn't lazy, and uh, I was, you know, I remember my, Patabi Joyce blew out my knee at Feather Pipe Ranch the first time I met him. He st- I was in Janushashasana Sea, and, you know, that, Manju calls that the ankle-breaking posture. Yeah. You know, and he came over, and I was running about 30 miles a week at that point. My husband was a world-class runner, and he was running 100 miles a week, wow. and, Patabi Joyce came over and he put one hand on my back and his foot on my knee. It was my right knee and pushed my knee to the floor and put my oh, head to the knee and the knee popped. And you can yeah. ta, uh, Tim Miller and Richard Freeman and John Schumacher all stood up and looked around. Patabi Joyce says, oh, good pop. And oh. Tim looks over at Richard and goes, she's a runner. And it was, you know, um, I was out of class for one day and then I just went, oh, the hell with it. I might as well just go back and keep going. And um, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a permanent debilitating injury, but. Oh, it was a good pop then. Oh, yeah, maybe. Uh, who knows? I don't no. think it was a I, I think your, because that It's not knee, your bad knee, though. Well, it sounds that, like a meniscus tear. Yeah, and, and, and that has kind of been there for a long time, and yeah. it's starting to get a little weakened now that I'm in my 70s, and now my orthopedist tells me he's a private yoga client, but he says, yeah, no, there's nothing you can do about it now. You're too old to have it repaired. (laughs) But I think that's where it started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was a good pop. I don't mean. (laughs) It's definitely not something you're, uh, you're seeking out when you go into your yoga practice. You know, that's, it's so important to be mindful of that of when does finding that balance between stira and sukha, between hard and soft, between, um, you know, effort and ease. If there's too much effort, too much ambition, too much class, you know, grasping and, and 
chasing after a particular result, then it risks injury. If you're, if there's too much ease, too much softness, too much surrender, too much, then you never get your ass off the ground. You know, you never get the fire going. Without the fire, nothing happens. And that's true in pranayama and meditation and this whole methodology completely is mm-hmm. that it's all built on agni, on building the fire. Yeah. And that's what motivates our practice, and um, and in it's very different in in asana. You know, it's heat in meditation. I find it more comes through as light and and mm-hmm. prana and energy. But it's still, you know, it's the first word in the Rig Veda, the Agni, mm-hmm. the fire is everything. It's interesting. You know, I, I'd heard a lot in um, Chicago about uh, Batavi Joyce when I was coming up in 93, 94, 95. And he was frightening. He was standing on people. He and his grandson (laughs) were breaking hamstrings. And everybody was coming back from India with a broken, snapped hamstring from Trivikramasana. And I was, but I was like, I was still game. Yep. And everybody I spoke to that was in this little Ashtanga Yoga community in the 90s was like, you've got to go to India. You know, you got to go experience that yourself. You got to go, you know, so I was kind of like thinking, yeah, I'm probably going to break my other hamstring, you know, because I'd broken the first one myself. And I thought, well, just, you know, I was up to do the other one. I was up for anything when I went to India. And it's it's interesting how a, a kind of a culture develops where, you know, we were up, we were developing a little cult. Of of going and having and doing this stuff and having this stuff done to us and I'm, I think we were all kind of um, up for it. I guess is is the right way to describe it. But we were all kind of urging and urging each other on at the same time. Russell, what do you think that is? That's a fascinating um, psychological state to me. Is that that you know, wanting to be, I mean, being willing, you know, the, the sutras tell us that we have to be willing to accept pain for transformation. Now, mm-hmm. what interpreting that is something else, you know, I, I don't think Patanjali means torture. I think he means transformation, you know, so yeah, we do have to accept discomfort. We do have to accept suffer- suffering is definitely essential because unless you go, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, unless you have a toothache, you you don't know how much you can appreciate and be grateful for not having a toothache. You know, okay. so, mm-hmm. so we go through the suffering, but, but that wanting, that Western mentality of wanting to be a good student, of wanting to, you know, surrender to you can't surrender to the wrong person or to the wrong teacher. I mean, you can, but when you surrender, you know, it, it has to be, you know, I don't really understand what it was that drives us to go back and be injured and then go back again. Some people just said, no, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this. I wasn't enough of a stand up and kick you in the teeth. If you abuse me kind of a person, I wanted to be liked and I wanted to be approved of. And so Mm -hmm. I had that issue going on. So I would, and I grew up in the forties and the fifties. 
Mm-hmm. So men at that point were something to be, you know, hopefully a man would like you and take care of you and and make you a movie star or, yeah. you yeah, know, it yeah. wasn't, you know, your role, my mother's role had, was as a homemaker. You know, she raised yeah. me and did the cooking and cleaning. She didn't have a job. She didn't work. Women didn't work in the 50s. And as we sort of moved out of that, I was kind of pushed out of the nest by the fact that I was an only child and my mom died and then my dad died. And so I had, you know, I went off and had to kind of learn to be on my own. But it took me a long time before I could stand up to uh, trying, for example, to be an actor in New York City in the 60s. I can tell you so many stories where I walked out of offices sobbing, where someone basically came down to either sleep with me right here in this office right now or you don't get the part. Well, and then I would because I wanted to be liked, I wanted to make a graceful exit but I certainly did not want to sleep with some of these nasty people, most of them, all of them, you know. So it was this terrible dilemma of like, okay, well, I guess I'm a failure. I'm just going to burst out crying and walk out of the room. Right. Whereas other women who maybe were a little more self, had a better self-image than I did, might have said, you know, screw you and, you know, walked out with her head held high. I always felt like it was my fault somehow. But interesting, and and we saw so much of that. What is it that made Anna Forrest able to stand up to Patabi Joyce and so many other women just tolerated it? And I think it was because of the culture. You know, it was the culture then. It was okay to get away. You know, you got away with it because you could. And it wasn't that different from the way most men were. If you ever watched Mad Men, yeah, that's, yeah. The way, that's, that's the way it was in the 60s. Yeah. I remember the, like Mati especially, for example, in New York, because she was at Jiva Mukti, and she let all the women coming to class know that it was, and other women in California let, the students know that, and the women in particular, that they were not to wear uh, revealing, you know, low-cut halter tops or anything that was revealing. They had to stay covered up on the top because it was too, you know, they didn't say this because it was too disrespectful to Patabi Joyce. Actually, it was too tempting to him. Um, <laughs> and so we had to stay covered up. But that was af- that was later. That was in the early 90s. Um, going back to 79 and 80, of course, I didn't meet him till, when was it? 87. Yeah. And then I studied with him for that whole, for like six months, that whole summer. Mm-hmm. And then 89, again, I was in Hawaii for a month. And then he came to New York for the first time, I guess in 91, and was there for a couple weeks. So I never studied with him in, in Mysore. I never went to, no, I've never been to Mysore when I went to India, it was to the north. Well, my experience is, is that it was, it was us, that, we, that, that everyone in the community was, um, was normalizing, was making the norms of behavior for the cultural mores of the group. And that we were all, um, we were all maybe complicit yeah, you know, I think you're right. And we certainly we didn't stand up 
against it enough. I mean, Tim had to talk to Patabi Joyce a number of times, and it was always, you know, that Patabi Joyce didn't understand or he wasn't, you know. I remember very distinctly Tim working to put out fires, as I said before, mm-hmm. in places mm-hmm. where someone had complained to him about Patabi Joyce's behavior. And it was a different time. I mean, if that happened now, <laughs> yeah, it would. You know, there'd be a revolution. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> there was, was in fact, <laughs> a Me Too revolution. Yeah. Mm. Um, I would like to know a bit more about your spiritual guru. What was what was it that drew you to him? Chitrabhanu. My he was had a huge following in India and had several million followers in Bombay at the time. And when he left India, there it was quite a, a, a inter it was quite a national event. There were huge protests at the airport. Uh, lay Jane people were supposedly laying down at the airport to keep the plane from taking off because he decided that he had had a calling to travel to the United States because no Jains had ever been here before. The Buddhists had come, the Hindus had come, but there were no Jain teachers. And so he was spending six months here and ultimately came every year from basically May through October, November, and then went back to India. And he did that every year until he died uh, last, I keep saying last year, I actually think it was 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in California and my friend Josh Reynolds, who I had met through biofeedback training, he was called me and said, you have to come meet this Indian teacher in New York. And I said, Josh, you know, I've met all the Indian teachers out here. I've met as many Indian teachers as I need to meet. I'm doing, I'm doing meditation. I'm doing biofeedback training. I'm taking classes occasionally with uh, uh, Choyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I really like the Buddhist approach to meditation. He was very precise and disciplined. He said, no, 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 you've got to come. So I flew back to New York and I went with Josh. We walked in and I remember I decided I was going to sit in the front on the floor and I sat on a little pillow and folded up my legs and closed my eyes. And he was not in the room yet. And he walked into the room and began speaking. And my father at the time was dying of cancer. And I, he gave a lecture on karma and death and dying and rebirth and answered basically in that lecture every question I had going at the time about understanding death and and it was it was the most liberating thing I'd ever experienced in my life up until that point I kept my eyes closed the entire lecture I never opened my eyes never looked at him 
and tears were just running down my face almost the whole time he was speaking. You know, he started speaking and then he'd say something and I, I would just get this wave of compassion and understanding. It was like I kept opening and opening and opening. But the only thing I didn't open was my eyes. Mm-hmm. And when he finished speaking, he closed with a little meditation. We all sat quietly. And we were all sitting with our eyes closed. And I opened my eyes and looked at him for the first time. It was this very, you know, good-looking brown man with coal black hair and just beautiful energy. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at me. And I felt at that point this real Shakti pot experience. And I always kind of poo-poo those kind of things because I'm not given to a lot of bells and whistles and feathers and chanting and hot. You know, I'm just a pretty practical uh, spiritual seeker. And I, But I felt like someone had sawed out the bone around my heart center and just lifted it out and this beam of light just hit me right in the chest Mm -hmm. and I was just like that's it (laughs) I'm in whatever you want I'm here and so that was in 71 in 74 I went to and I uh I brought him and his wife to California and took him down the coast and we met Uh, Dr. Mishra, who became Brahma, I can't remember what he changed his name to. He was in San Francisco, and then we met Yogi Bhajan, we met Swami Satchidananda. I took him to meet all the yoga teachers that were teaching in California at that time. We did this two-month tour, and um, then he went back to, they went back to New York and then I moved to Colorado, and I brought him to Colorado a couple times to teach and do workshop, weekend workshops. And, um, and you know, the two primary teachings of the Jains are Ahinsa and Anakantavada, which basically were the two primary principles of Mahatma Gandhi's uh, spiritual practice. And Anakantavada means relativity of thinking. So between relativity of thinking and reverence for life, you know, non-harming, that sort of drives the whole Jain philosophy. And um, I became very enamored with the idea of Mahavira, who was a contemporary Buddha, mm-hmm. an, an actual person, and was the sort of the last in a line of what in Jainism is called Tirtankaras, or one those who have conquered themselves very similar to the Buddha and the tr- their philosophy, the whole uh, Jain uh, oncology, uh, not oncology, ontology. Ontology, yeah. yeah, is very similar to. It's a very similar path to Buddhism. So yeah, that was that was it. But he was exactly the right person at the right time, mm-hmm. and they have, I never had an experience like that with anybody else. So I'd already pretty much found my teacher you know, when I met Patabi Joyce. So, right, I, right. and again, was less inclined to, to become a devotee. So, and, and that kind of pissed him off. You know, I didn't go to India to study with him. I was a good student, but I didn't go to India and I didn't throw myself at his feet. I just was respectful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and did and you continue, continue to follow, to follow him, him uh, until, uh, until his, his death? death? Yes. Wow. Wow. I did. You know, you said something interesting. Um, I think is really. We, we were talking about Ahinsa earlier, and um, you know, I know the word is Ahinsa, and, and you know, I feel like I've learned the word um, from someone who is confident they they pronounce the word right. And this this notion of rightness or wrongness. Yeah. A pronunciation is is again a cultural normative behavior and is much more about you know me being right than about what actually is and so um it's like it's it's, it's about ownership and it reminded me of um a, a conversation that i i was i was privy to um, you had come to San Francisco, and this is where I first met you the first time. I couldn't been couldn't have been more of a fanboy when I met you, uh, Congressman Tim Ryan. Oh my God! Was that, it was doing a uh, a panel? You were on the panel. And that was so, such a great. That was such a great panel. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Also, uh, Gopi Kalai, who's yep. a friend of mine, who is like director of of uh, contemplation at Google. Chief That's, mindfulness officer. Yeah, chief mindfulness officer at Google, right. And um, you, you were on the panel, and a, a young in, Indian woman. Oh, uh, my God, I remember that. Up, and she stood up right next to me, and she basically accused the entire journal, yoga journal crowd of cultural appropriation, of yep. inappropriateness, and how this no one is paying um, the right respect to India. And I, oh, I wanted, I just wanted to say so much to her at that time, but you know, you fantasize about it for weeks afterward. <laughs> and then I, I heard this, this Noah Chomsky thing about language and that language is fluid. Language can't be owned. You know, the, the French language in near Switzerland is Swiss. The French language near Germany is very German. Um, it, it changes. And for the French Academy to insist on what French is and what French isn't, that's about nationalism. That isn't about what is. That's about power. Exactly. And I, I want to know if you, if, you, if you took anything away from that conversation, because you had to answer the, the fucking question. <laughs> I don't and, remember what I said, but I know how I feel about it now. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about English, the English language and how it's spoken in England and how it's spoken, let's just look at how it's spoken in the United States. If you listen to someone from Boston speaking English, mm -hmm. someone from Texas speaking English, someone from New Mexico <laughs> and Mississippi and Detroit, mm -hmm. you know, you could argue forever about what the correct, correct pronunciation is for any word. And I'm assuming that it's very similar in India and was the same thing. Sanskrit at one time was a spoken language. I'm, and so the people in the north probably pronounced it very differently than the people in the south. I know, for example... Uh, what is the, what's the, the difference between asana? Oh, and asan. 
yeah, a the, son. Pranayam. Pranayam. That drives me crazy. Why does it drive me crazy? It drives me crazy because it's not what I'm used to. It's not what I think is right. You know, and I go, okay, well, somebody pronounces it pranayam and asan. And I'm going, no, no, no. What's, you know, so, and I just learned about this ahinsa from my friend Kendall Rickard, who, and Ben, her husband, who studied with um, Geshe Michael Roach. And they were teaching all my students that the correct pronunciation is actually, and they had a very good logical you know, break down each of the roots explanation. I go, okay. And I wasn't resistant to it at all. I thought, okay, well, I've never been, you know, I have butchered, I used to call Dharana, Dharana. Mm -hmm. And I used to say Prasarita when it's Prasarita. And, you know, you slowly correct your pronunciation. But the cultural appropriation thing, you know, it depends on whether you're looking, what your perspective is. If we're, if you're looking at connectedness and no boundaries, mm-hmm. then isn't, shouldn't everything be accessible to all people? If you're looking to say, hey, we want to maintain the purity of this language or this Native American language or this dialect in the north of Scotland, and we don't want it to be corrupted because of for historical purity and integrity and value, then that's something else. So I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think corruption means that the people who are corrupting you are less than you. And I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that that yes. we see that people are less. Than yes, you. exactly. That you you people are taking this tradition belongs to India and you are making it less than what it was. Mm -hmm. And because our emphasis was on the physical and on the tangible and on asana and for a long time, you know, that meditation was sort of disregarded and yoga did come to be synonymous. You know, I've been preaching that for years that the word yoga is not synonymous with asana, even though that that's what the general public thinks. Mm-hmm. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be yoga was synonymous with meditation. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's an interesting point. Yeah, cultural especially, appropriation. You know, especially as a member of the chosen people, I think I have to kind of <laughs> have some some sympathy. Uh, for you, for you, Goyam. Mm. We're just always getting everything wrong. <laughs> exactly. That's my main problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. Isn't this fun? The two of you are so, such good conversationalists. I mean, you haven't done much in the way of conversation, but you really lead the podcast in a very... Um, in a very effective way. This is, this is really nice. (laughs) We're really glad that you're having a good time. (laughs) Go on forever. Wow. So what do you think about this uh, pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I'm going to quote Harmony's father and I'm going to say it hasn't gone far enough. (laughs) Oh, 7 billion people. And there really needs to be, it really needs to be about 2 billion people. And that's what Harmony's father will tell you right now. Oh, is he married? 
Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my soulmate. You know, there's a town, Gallup, New Mexico. It's not too far from. I I have a small little adobe house in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that I bought a couple of years ago. It's in a rental program, and so it's. I've been really lucky that it gets rented out for like two weeks or a month at a time, and pretty much pays for the mortgage, but. Um, I was supposed to go down, like leave on Christmas Day and drive down with my two dogs and spend six weeks there. And I'm not going now because I just, I just, I just don't think it's a, uh, you yeah. know, traveling and, yeah. and no, getting gas and fun. Get gas, you get COVID. That's everybody knows that. Yeah, <laughs> you put your COVID on the handle of the gas. That's, That's it. <laughs> oh. So I'm sort of bummed, but I just heard about this little town, Gallup, New Mexico, that has had something like 30 to 40 percent of their population. Their population is 50 percent Native American and 30 to 40 percent of the population, the total population, has died of COVID. It's it's devastated the town. It's destroyed all the businesses. It's ruined all the, you know that there's the economy is unemployment is huge. So, and you just think, wow. Yeah. New Mexico where there's a lot of space is having a pretty hard time of it as well. I'm so grateful, Beryl, to have you on the show. This is, this is the biggest um, thing that's ever happened to the show. Oh my God. You say that to all your guests. <laughs> I know you. Oh, we're just fun. we're so grateful that you said yes to come on and and have a chat with us because we had a, a, such a wonderful time chatting with you and I you know, feel we like have- we need to dig into more of your stories and more of your your insight and wisdom because it's there's a lot of depth there and we just touched the surface. So much fun. I'm so grateful. This was such a good opportunity and fun to talk to all your your fans and, and <laughs> all our listeners. practitioners. And um, yeah, it'd be fun to just chat with the two of you. We should plan a Zoom call sometime in January and just have just chat and have fun, get to That'd know be each nice. other. That'd yeah, be nice. Yeah, we would love that. Please. And tell everyone who's listening where they can find you. You have your own school, The Hard and the Soft. Is that what it's I called? do have my own school, The Hard and the Soft. My website is barrelbenderbirch.com or power-yoga.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm running teacher training programs. Now we have a fabulous 300-hour training running now with an extraordinary faculty. And it, uh, we're starting that up again in May. And we're starting a 200-hour training next month uh, at the start of the new year. I'm starting a whole pro. I'm starting to teach again. I'm going to teach a little package of um, meditation and pranayama and yoga nidra and asana classes. And there'll be a little discussion package. And it'll be a week monthly package that you can either do by the week or by the month or just the classes. Um, and how would you let me know that you wanted to do that? Um, my email is just, you know, just email info at power-yoga.com. Fantastic. Let us, let us know. And uh, there's a fabulous, I'm part of a, a yoga sutra symposium that's happening the end of January. Lots of good stuff. It's all on the website. So, Thanks for um, letting me know about that. Yeah, we have a great teacher training program. 
Yeah. It's all about lifestyle. It's about really developing the yoga lifestyle. I'm more interested in creating activists than good asana teachers. We need people out there standing up for the environment and the animals and the, you know, the, the rainforests and the oceans and, and learn, know how to teach asana as well and teach meditation (laughs) and, Yeah, definitely. Those are really important, taking our practices into the world. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's That's it. Yeah, that is why we practice. (laughs) That's what I say. You know, people say, oh, this time, you know, COVID. But I go, "This this is why we practice. This is what we've been practicing for. This is not the time to hide under the couch. You know, we may not always be perfect. We may not always be able to stand up and lead the parade. But for the most part, you know, we have a responsibility as practitioners and those who are at least awake, maybe not fully enlightened, but, you know, I don't think any of us still throw trash out of the windows of our car. There's some awareness happening and we have a responsibility to bring the best of our being to every moment. Mm. And that, re- that comes out of practice. And, over a long time without a break with earnestness, as our beloved Yoga Sutra tells us. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Beryl. Love you guys. Thank you you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Oh